Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Morning. Welcome to North Sound Church. Great to see you all this morning. Herb and Lynn, you're on the wrong side of the church. And Will and Erica, you're on the wrong side. Does this moving right reflect a political change in your... Yeah? Okay. Good. Um, I have, Erica, I hope I don't embarrass you, but uh, could you stand up for just a minute? So Erica does, didn't know I was going to do this, but Erica is the morning host. Host or host? Host, I guess. Host. I would address better if I knew about this. Oh. <laughs> she is the morning host on KCMS Radio, and I just heard... I don't know who I heard it from, but that your show is the highest rated radio show in Seattle in the appropriate demographic group, um, period. Not just Christian stations, but all the stations. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So next time you hear that voice, you will know um, who it is, our very own Erica. Well, um, I wanted to mention to you for prayer a couple of things. Um, One is that uh, Jan Anderson, part of our congregation, um, is close to going to be with the Lord. Um, I was in email contact with uh, her husband, Kurt. They've been in North Sound a long time and uh, probably in the next few days, so you can remember them in prayer. Also, um, Joanne Lawrence is having cancer surgery this week, and she would appreciate our prayers and also um, uh, to, for us to know that she is uh, feeling a good at peace, um, but um, it's a challenging journey, so please pray for her. Uh, it's been a tough um, I'm sure you're probably watching, Joanne, and it's been a tough uh, few weeks, actually few months, because Steve was hospitalized, her husband, uh, and then last week we announced that her brother unexpectedly passed away, and then uh, dealing with her own health needs. So please remember um, Joanne in prayer. Also want to mention the earthquake offering. We are going to, at the end of the service on the way out, kind of like we do for benevolence, take an offering for earthquake relief. Um, there's, uh, I checked this morning, 28,000 people have died. That's about half the population of the city of Edmonds have passed away between Turkey and Syria. And we'll partner with World Concern uh, in sending funds um, overseas to help. Um, we'll have a, just an offering plate available at the back. I realize nowadays many of us don't carry checkbooks. Um, so if you're not prepared, you're welcome to use uh, church online capability. But make sure you mark it for uh, earthquake relief. And also you can certainly mail a check in to, uh, to church uh, as well if you would like to make a, a contribution. So you'll have a chance to do that after the service. And then finally, I heard something about a football game um, today. Anybody know anything about that? Okay, so I have to do a straw poll. I didn't do this in the first service, but straw poll, how many are watching the game today? Okay, how many are not watching the game today? I think the eyes have it, don't you? Uh, So uh, something that's interesting is that the two quarterbacks... uh, are African-American for the first time in the Super Bowl. And uh, so that's unique. And the the news have been talking about that. What they haven't talked much about 
is the fact that both quarterbacks are very committed followers of Jesus Christ. So not just sort of sports hero, you know, Jesus stuff, but in fact, they're, they're very active uh, followers of Jesus. So you can cheer for whichever team you want then, right? Um, I don't know. How many, I, I got to do another straw poll because I, I really don't have a favorite. So how many of you want Kansas City to win? Okay, how many um, Philadelphia? I, I think it's about a draw uh, on, that, on that front. Okay, we are going to get into the sermon for today. We are on the fourth word of the five words of worship. I hope you've been enjoying the series, and I have to warn you today that this one is a little deeper. Theologically, we're going to talk about some big theological words, but Probably most of them you've heard before, but what I want to do is try to explain in the context of the word Hosanna what it means when we say we get saved. What, it, what does it mean to be saved? So we're going we're gonna to unpack that theologically um, this morning. So hang in there. Um, I remember well um, a young lady that sat on the front row that when we finished with the series uh, in which we were exploring some other concepts Um, she said to me, she said, I'm glad that series is over, (laughs) Uh, indicating that it was over her head, and uh, thank you very much. Appreciated the encouragement. Um, I'm hoping that this will not be the case and that you will just enjoy this. You may want to um, borrow a pencil from the purse of the woman beside you to uh, follow along. Uh, I notice I'm talking to the guys here because I think they tend to nod in agreement or something more than the women do in a, in a sermon. Little fellow was driving home with his pastor dad, and his dad said, Honey, um, how do you think they enjoyed the sermon this morning? And the little guy said, I think they enjoyed it, Dad. I saw a lot of people nodding all the way through. <laughs> okay, so we're going to consider the word Hosanna today. And uh, we're going to do our usual quiz this morning. Please don't disappoint me. Abba refers to God's... God, yeah, but it refers to the what? Imminence of God, thank you. And the word itself is best translated as... Daddy, thank you. That, That was pretty good. A little bit of coaching, but that was pretty good. So we talked about the imminence of God and how God is very close to us and that the scripture identifies him as Abba or Daddy. Then we talked about, the next week, we talked about Hallelujah, and Hallelujah talked about God's, ooh, it's too quiet, transcendence. Who said that? Good job. Good job. So we talked about God's transcendence and the fact that in addition to being very close to us, um, he is Yahweh, the word that is so sacred that the Jewish folks still won't even repeat it. They will say Adonai in replacement, which means Lord. And we talked about the beauty around us. In our staff meeting this week, I asked our staff to talk about both imminence, the imminence of God and the transcendence of God, and to share stories. And it was fascinating. I wish we had time to share with you the stories that they shared. But for me, one of the experiences of transcendence I keep talking about is seeing the Olympic range. But another one is uh, being in 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 a British cathedral and looking up and the 
the ceiling is so high, and it, it, you walk in and you just go woof, your eyes just go transcendent like that. So that's hallelujah. And then last week we talked about Thank you, thank you. Uh, we talked about amen, and we talked about how amen is an affirmation of truth, and that even Jesus himself is called the amen of God, or the, the truth of God revealed to us. So today, we're going to talk about Hosanna. If you drive down into Ballard on 24th Street, you will see a church that is called the Philadelphia Church. And it seems a little confusing for it to be the Philadelphia Church in Ballard, but in the book of Revelation, it also talks about the Church of Philadelphia. So that's how they, that's how they get their name. And so if you drive by, the church looks just like it did in about 19, I don't know, 55 or so, whenever it was built on the outside. They've remodeled it on the inside. But on the outside still is this big sign that says, Jesus saves, thank you. Some of you have driven by or are familiar with that. It says Jesus saves. The pastor of the church, Derek Forseth, um, is the son, just a little trivia for you, but is the son of Bob Forseth. And Bob Forseth went to the Bible college of which my dad was the principal back in the late 40s. And it may very well be the story I told you last week about the spirit coming in a rushing wind and people laying down prostrate before the Lord. Um, I'm always afraid I'm going to say prostate, and it, it, it's, there's, the words are so close, but it's prostrate before the Lord. And, uh, and Bob very well might have been one of those uh, people that were um, one of the students that was there at that time. Jesus saves. I saw a t-shirt once that had us big letters on it. Jesus saves, and underneath it, it said, your reverend spends. <laughs> your pastor spends. So we just came through the annual meeting, and apparently I didn't spend too much because we're, we're in the black as a church, so I guess that's, that's all right. <clears throat> so Hosanna is quite literally about the fact that Jesus saves. That's essentially what the word is all about. In Mark eleven nine, 9, which was read for us this morning by Dennis Gulke, we read the account of what's come to be called Jesus' triumphant entry. We may read this very verse again in a little over a month when we come to Palm Sunday. It's the story of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And what did the people say? They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were quoting, actually, a prophecy in Psalms 118 where we read, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So the people who were saying Hosanna were associating Jesus with the fulfillment of the prophecy of salvation. And they were recognizing that Jesus was now the fulfillment and the Messiah. The root word of Hosanna is the Hebrew word yasha, meaning save. And it's interesting that Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. We sometimes say Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And it's based on the same root, yasha, meaning Yahweh saves. So... When the scripture refers to the fact that Jesus saves, behind it is the richness of this question of Jesus saves us from what? What does Jesus save us from? 
Well, we're going to spend some time unpacking that today, and the problem is, is that we have all, 100% of us in this room, been held captive to something called sin. And we need to be saved from the bondage of sin in our lives. We learn something about the need in our lives to be liberated from sin, from the character Fantine in in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Fantine, you may recall, was a single mother who lost her job and then went into prostitution to feed herself and her daughter. And in the musical version of Les Mis, she says, I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. For many of us, our lives are different than what we had expected because of the addiction that is experienced by everyone, and that is the propensity to do the wrong thing, the propensity to do what we call sin. The bad choice of Adam and Eve illustrated it for us and affected us. The bad choice of Adam and Eve was having been created in the image of God, having been created to love God, and yet not be some kind of an automaton that's forced to love because there isn't any real love there. If, if our artificial intelligence scientists get around to perfecting uh, cyborgs or human beings that are uh, look to be human but uh, are not, they can program in to them to love us. But the love is completely meaningless, and that's the way God was with Adam and Eve. He needed to give them a choice. And they made a very bad choice. And the fact of the matter is not only has their choice influenced us, but in our lives we see the same thing happening. If you are a parent or a grandparent or an auntie or uncle or you've been around children at all, you know one of the very first words that children learn. And that word is no. That's right. No. Right? We are are born somewhat resistant to authority, to someone speaking into our lives. We want to go our own way. And so today we're going to talk about this bondage and how Jesus saves us from the bondage of sin. Hosanna is a proclamation, an expression of praise that Jesus saves. And so what I want to do, and this is kind of where we, we get a bit into the theological part, is I want to talk about the players on the cosmic stage of salvation, uh, and then I want to unpack the theological words that apply it to us. So please don't, don't glaze over, stay with me, follow me, and I think you'll find it helpful in terms of understanding the big picture because not often do we take these words that refer to salvation and put them together with understanding the whole. So the first player in the cosmic drama of salvation is God the Father. The Father saw our bondage to sin. Things in the garden didn't go the way he wanted it to go, but because of his love for us, he wanted to provide a means to restore fellowship, to restore relationship. 
We read in John 3, perhaps the first verse that many of us memorized if we grew up in church. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, we found increasingly that the world has a bad view of the church. And they feel like we're judging and condemning them. And yet this passage says God came into the world in Jesus Christ not to condemn the world to save the world. And that's the good news. That's the message that we want to articulate. We're also introduced in this passage to the next key player in this cosmic drama, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Theologians call his coming the incarnation. So we have the preciousness of the the, the baby in Bethlehem and the shepherds and the kids acting that out, and it's such a wonderful thing. And it's so very true, but behind that is the richness of theological meaning of the incarnation and the fact that God became a human being in Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We are saved from our trespasses, our sins, and raised for our justification. We'll talk a little more about that in a moment. So we shout Hosanna because Jesus saves, and he saved us by dying on the cross for our sins. The fourth player is me and you and our response to what God has done. We need to respond by believing in him and expressing in faith through confession and repentance. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. 1 John 1, 9, we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession and repentance, I, you know, you've often seen me illustrate this. So in sin, when we give in to the captivity of sin, we're walking in a direction and typically it begins to get worse. If we give ourselves to it, it begins to get worse and we get farther away from the truth, farther away from what God would have for us. And often we begin to either feel the results or we see our trajectory and we see where we're going to end up and we come to a stop and we say, well, wait a minute. And we see how far we've come and confession is to say, Lord, I've, I've come this far. I've, I've, I've failed in these ways and I don't like where I'm headed. And repentance then is to turn It's to be sorry for this, to turn and to walk in the other direction. This is confession and repentance. That's our part in this cosmic drama because God does not simply compel us to make that, but he invites us into relationship, and it's our responsibility to respond. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So now we're going to talk about the fourth player for much of the rest of our time, and that is the Holy Spirit. And here we're going to unpack some theological words where the Holy Spirit applies to our lives the truth of Jesus saving us. So the first word is regeneration. If you are... uh, My age or older, excuse me, my age or younger, 
there's a good chance that you watched your children being born. And I, I know that for, for my dad's generation, my mom's generation, that typically wasn't the case. The, the doctor or the nurse would come out and say, you know, Mr. Crane, you have um, a beautiful baby boy, and that was how you, you know, discovered it. I, I love the humorous Dave Barry. I don't know how many of you have, um, have ever followed Dave Barry, but he is hilarious. I found out today from someone that Dave Barry has a blog, um, so apparently um, you, can, you can still follow uh, some of his stuff. But he wrote, uh, he wrote an article that you can, you, can, uh, uh, you, you can Google, I think, and see if you can find it. But the article was called, To Witness the Birth of Your Own Child is to Know the Meaning of the Term Yucky. And he proceeds as a humorist to go through the birthing process from the perspective of an expectant father and the uh, things that he wasn't expecting, uh, the messiness, as it were, to be a part of that, that process. So when our firstborn was about to be born, we, uh, we went to childbirth classes, and that's also to know the meaning of embarrassment carrying grown men carrying pillows into this room and women laying down and their husbands kneeling beside them and breathing like they've just finished a, a marathon. It's, a, it's not, really a, not really a pretty scene. But nothing can adequately prepare a father or a mother for the birth of their little one. It may be a little yucky in terms of the process, but what an incredible thing. Absolutely indescribable, incredible thing to witness that new life coming into the world and beginning the relationship with this absolute wonder, this child. Regeneration, being born again, is like this. In Titus 3.5, we read these words, for he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So Christ's death on the cross became the means by which our sins are forgiven, but it's applied to our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration describes the work of the Spirit through which we are reborn, born again, born from above, and we come into, through that experience, the family of God, and we become a full member of the family of God, just like Sean and Ryan and Ethan became, Ryan, Sean and Ryan and Scotty became a part of our family, and then we were thankful to add Ethan and Thomas as well. But the wonder of them being added through a birth into our family, through rebirth, through regeneration, we are added into God's family. Regeneration is God's answer to the alienation that comes from sin. When we have our time of prayer at communion, we have the prayer of confession. And you'll notice prayer of confession, I almost always say, is to address anything that has come into our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with others. That is sin that affects those relationships. The next thing that we're going to unpack is justification. Justification is also an important part of conversion. The Holy Spirit grants us a new understanding of our relationship with God. Instead of being treated like the sinners that we are, according to Martin Luther, even though we have been born again, 
Simul justus et peccator, at the same time saint and sinner, still applies to us because none of us are perfect. I attempted to tell a story in the first service and completely blew it, so I will tell you in this service and try to get it right, but um, I have shared this before. Some of you may remember about the pastor that was talking about the fact that none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. And so he, he offered as a, as a rhetorical device to the congregation to say, does anyone know a perfect person, assuming that nobody would respond yes. But a guy in the back raised his hand, and now the pastor was stuck. The rhetorical question now had an answer, so he had to respond. And so he looked at him, and he said, sir, you know a perfect person? And the guy said, yes, my wife's first husband. <laughs> so... So, other than your wife's first husband, there are no perfect people. And so, justification comes to us as a part of what it means for Jesus to die on the cross for us. I'm going to show you some Greek words, which you don't need to remember, but uh, you see on the slide, but I, I want to illustrate the concept with them, and that is that to justify which is a verb in the Greek, dikaiu, means to make righteous, which is dikaios, resulting in a state of righteousness called dikaiosune. So the righteous person, from an Old Testament perspective, is the one who does the will of God. And in the New Testament usage, the expression literally means the same as in the Old Testament, and that is conduct that is right and pleasing to God. But here's the critical point. This justification isn't based upon what we do. It's not based upon how good we are, how good we follow the rules. It's not based upon that. And some of us grew up in church environments where this was conveyed in, in some way or it was picked up in some way within the church. If you ask a secular person about going to heaven, a not atypical answer will be for them to say, well, when I look at my life, um, I think the good that I did outweighed the bad, so I'm going to be acceptable to God. And it's a, unfortunately a terrible misunderstanding because salvation, Jesus saves, has nothing to do with how good we are. It has to do with how good he is and what he has done for us. And so... <clears throat> God covers our sin in justification. The, the imagery that we have is stripping off the old tattered garments, the, the soiled, dirty garments, and putting on the garment that God has given us in which, through Jesus' death in which God sees us uh, as this suit of righteousness because of what Jesus has done. Galatians 3 says, Now it is evident that no one is justified by God through the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. One of Martin Luther's great <clears throat> contributions to the church in the Reformation was sola fide, that we are saved through faith alone, our faith alone, not our good works, but our faith alone. Through sola gratia, grace alone, God's grace coming to us, free gift, Again, we don't do anything for it. It's a free gift that's revealed to us, sola scriptura, through the scripture alone, which reveals to us the truth of this particular insight into what Jesus did for us on the cross. 
The next word that we have to unpack in terms of what the Holy Spirit does for us is liberation. In the great conflict between God and the evil one, there's more at work than just the failure of what we call in our human nature. Some of you may be old enough to remember the comedian Flip Wilson. And Flip Wilson didn't like to take responsibility when he did something wrong, and so he blamed somebody else. Does anybody remember who he blamed? What did he say? The devil made me do it. Yeah, the devil made me do it. And so in this cosmic battle that we're talking about, there is our own human nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve, and it's a propensity to move towards sin. But we also have someone that doesn't want us to succeed. And although we need to be careful about being the victim of the devil and not taking personal responsibility, there is some truth to the devil making me do it. It's important, I think, for us to understand that we need to recognize what is going on around us, that there is this cosmic battle and evil would like to influence us towards sin. I highly recommend to you the, the screw tape letters. The screw tape letters are written by C.S. Lewis from the point of view of a senior demon writing to a junior demon about his relationship with a Christian that's trying to live the Christian life and everything that the demon can do to try to influence the Christian for bad. It's a wonderful picture of sort of from an unexpected source. We have the victory in our lives because of the liberating, liberating power over the evil one by what Jesus did on the cross and its application in our lives by the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, 4, we read, he who is, your, is, he who is in you is greater than he was in the world. We don't need to be afraid of the devils and the demons. The one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. In John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Those who are sinners are slaves <clears throat> to sin, according to John 8, 34. There's another consequence of sin, and that is death. Romans 6.23, we read that death is the result of sin. There's spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. But we also don't need in this life to live in that kind of bondage, either regarding our future or our present, because Jesus has been victorious over the power of evil on the cross and through his resurrection power over death. We have been invited into that through the Holy Spirit, which delivers us from the power of sin in our lives. Romans 8, 11 is a great prom promise. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul says elsewhere that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life brings freedom. 2 Corinthians 3 now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Friends, the freedom that we experience gives us the ability to overcome that predisposition that we have to do the wrong thing and instead to make good choices. And we have learned in our lives, all of us have learned in our lives, that transformation and character change is a process. When we are born 
into the kingdom, it, it doesn't mean that we are completely perfect again and we never sin, but in fact, when we're born into the kingdom, we enter into a lifelong journey of transformation. We call this lifelong process discipleship. And then, very quickly, empowerment is the recognition that as a result of conversion, we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 11, we read, and I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When the Holy Spirit comes, he empowers us for our life, for saying no to sin, and for ministry. Remember, in Acts 1.8, as Jesus was going to the Father, essentially his last words to the disciples were, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When we go through the process of conversion, we're given the Holy Spirit to bring us to a place of effectiveness in our life over sin and the opportunity to serve others. So I want to conclude this morning with one last expression, and that is the fact that as a result of this process of Jesus saving us is that he is saving us into community. When we watch our child being born, it's not just a process that is there for that day, but in fact the child is being born into community. The child is being born into family, and that's why it's so tragic when there are children that come into this world who are not immediately a part of a family. We, as a result of our conversion, as a result of Jesus saving us, have been brought into a family. We've been reconciled with God, and we've been brought into a community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we have been brought into this community as well, and the community of some two billion Christians around the world. Paul says in Ephesians 2, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God has called us to unity and peace in our life together. We're to bear with one another, which is not always easy, even in our families. We're to bear each other's burdens. If you look around the room, we're to bear each other's burdens. We're to forgive one another. And as a result of our conversion and our life together, we navigate life together. We journey together through the good times and the bad times of life. The scriptures tell us that the key sign of the church to those outside the church is the love that we have for one another. The palpable love that is a part of the Christian community is the witness to those outside the church regarding the quality of our community. How exciting it is to know that Jesus saves that as we sing Hosanna, we honor Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the work of salvation. 
Many of you have probably heard the name uh, Tim Keller. Tim Keller uh, is a Presbyterian Church in America pastor. He went about 30 years ago to New York and planted Redeemer Church in New York City. And Redeemer Church grew, and there were other church plants in uh, Manhattan, uh, New York area. And then um, as he got a little older, he uh, resigned from the church but stayed active in ministry. Uh, And then about two years ago, uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, Normally, that's just a um, few-month diagnosis uh, that that death usually happens in a very short time. It's been about two years now, um, and he is still writing and contributing uh, amazingly. And he, uh, he wrote an article in The Atlantic magazine, and I commend the entire article to you, but I want to read you as I close this morning just a, just a br- couple of brief sections. He says that in order for there to be revival in America, in other words, for many, many, many more Americans to understand that Jesus saves, he said in order for there to be revival in America... Three things need to happen. The first is churches need to escape political captivity. The second is we need a union of extraordinary prayer. And the third is the distinguishing of the gospel from moralism. This is what he writes. He said, American evangelicals have largely responded to the, to the decline of the church by turning to a political project of regaining power in order to expel secular people from places of cultural influence. But a demographically shrinking church that identifies heavily with one narrow band of political actors will not be relevant in America. A dynamically growing body of believers making visible sacrifices for the good of their neighbors, on the other hand, may indeed shape the culture, mainly through attraction rather than compulsion. So how do we attract others? He says, it's making visible sacrifices for the good of our neighbors. And in that regard, he tells the story of Langdon Gilkey, as illustrated in his book, Shantung Compound. It's another great book I recommend to you. It's the story of Langdon Gilkey's Gilkey's imprisonment in a prison camp during World War II in China. And Langdon uh, Gilkey was was not a soldier. This was for civilians who were serving, mostly missionaries, who were serving in China when the Japanese invaded China and they were interned, interned in this particular camp. Also in the camp, along with Langdon Gilkey, was Eric Little. Eric Little is the famous runner from Chariots of Fire, and Gilkey in Shantung Compound talks about what he saw in the lives of people in the camp, including the missionaries. He said, at the time, Gilkey, who was not a Christian believer when he was interned, is honest about how many missionaries in the cramped and difficult conditions of the camp not only behaved in selfish and ungenerous ways, but often added sanctimonious rationales for their behavior. Little, however, stood out. He poured himself out for others and was overflowing with humor, kindness, 
and an unmistakable inner peace. When Little died suddenly of a brain tumor, all mourned. Gilkey concluded that religion and moralism do not provide love. Often they make self-centeredness worse, especially when they lead, as they will, to pride in one's moral accomplishments. Little, however, believed the grace of the gospel of sheer grace through Christ. In Little, Gilkey had a picture of what we could be if we are at the same moment humbled yet profoundly lifted high by the knowledge of God's unconditional love through undeserved grace. Gilkey, quoting theologian Reinhard Niebuhr, wrote, Religion is not the place where the problem of man's egotism is automatically solved. Rather, the ultimate battle takes place between human pride and God's grace. One of the greatest challenges as Christians that we have is the fact that we can slip into moralism and pride and see ourselves as better than other people when friends were not. And what separates us is not our goodness, but it's the grace of God that's come into our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the promises of your word. We thank you for Hosanna. We thank you that you indeed save. We don't save, you do. And so, Lord, deal with our pride. Deal with our moralism. Help us to be the kind of people that show those around us who are not followers of Jesus that we love them by how we serve them and by how we love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.